Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowlers. Welcome to the North American Waterfowler. I am Elliot, your host here. I hope that you've been liking all of these episodes. I know that I have been really enjoying making them, and I'm so excited about tonight's guest. The first ever guest on the North American Waterfowler, North American Waterfowler listed publicly. Today's guest is my buddy Matt Farmer, and Matt and I have hunted the same area our whole lives i'm a little bit older than he is and when i first started duck hunting there was this small airboat whizzing around the marsh and i didn't know it was matt and his dad (laughs) so didn't know him at the time but we've been in the same area what i call my hometown marsh he manages he is the biologist i don't know what the exact title is but he's the uh, manager biologist at this place and we're going to go into deep detail on how how biologists managers go about managing these places for waterfowl hunting and we're going to go into the weeds on that i cannot wait for it because you know i go up there and hunt and he's still there and we talk and some of the things he says i just find riveting fascinating so we had him on the duck on podcast before so a couple times so but we're going to go in a little more in depth into that but let's get take care of some business real quick here um, I just wanted to give you guys an update on what's going on in my hunting career. And then I want to revisit for a second um, something I talked about on episode three, which was the first publicly released North American Waterfowler podcast where I talked about value of ducks and, and so forth. And I want to revisit that. And I'm really curious to get Matt's opinion on it. I know he's listened to that episode. And I think this is a common theme that... I'm going to hit up with guests. I'm going to pose the question to them, what is the value of a duck? And see how they answer it, what their thoughts are on it. And I am going to give them ahead of time. I want them to think about it. I don't want them to be caught off guard. So I'm going to tell the guys, hey, this question's coming. Uh, and be ready to answer it. So I cannot wait to get to that. So I'm recording this on January 11th. And here in the state of Kansas, everything's pretty much closed right now for ducks. Everything is closed right now for ducks, but goose is open. And so I did take last weekend off, but this weekend we've got a zone opening and I'm going to be getting on it. I'm going to be, I'm hoping to finish this season strong. I've got this place, shallow water marsh, hard to hide in. So I got an invite to go with my buddy Cole and his brother. And I'm like, you know what? I want to get me and my dog in my layout boat. One man to hide, one dog to hide, and really see if I can get on like that. I'm excited about it. So I cannot wait for that hunt. I'm pumped. So I've got basically three more weekends. I'll probably get in three or four more duck hunts. I'm at hunt number 31 right now. 
which I'm logging all of my hunts on freelance hunt stats soon to be changed. The name will soon be changed to the North American waterfowler. So freelance hunt stats is changing his name over to that, but this is hunt number 31 and I'll have some podcasts where I go over all of my data and statistics. Cause guys, if you're not logging your hunts into tracking your memories, you're going to miss out. If you're, if you are an OCD waterfowl hunter, which I will talk about that. I was thinking about that on the way home. I'm an OCD waterfowl hunter. So <laughs> if you're one of those like I am and you just can't get enough of it and and you are a North American waterfowler at your core, you need to be recording your data, your memories, and so that in five, ten years you can look back at it and better remember what each and every hunt brought to you with notes and you know how many birds did you harvest and who were you hunting with. And we're gonna have some more added features here real soon we're going to be working on but we have about four more hunts and i'm hoping that i can finish strong i'm still very low on my mallard drake um, numbers for this year compared to normal i'm probably about 20 to 30 birds lower than eh, about 20 birds lower than about half of what my normal i'm normally at this time somewhere around the 30 mallard drake mallard range and i'm at i think i have to look it up i think i'm at 15 something like that which is very very low for this time of year so i'm hoping i can end strong and get some mallard drakes on the board so all right so on episode number three if you haven't listened to it it's the first one on itunes spotify and all of that i went into an in-depth conversation about wounding bird loss but really what is the value of a duck and I talked a lot about the difference of a duck versus uh, a deer and how we make those decisions as hunters. How, how do we decide which animals we think have, have more value or how much value do we actually give to a singular duck? And, and it's, you know, if, if it gets wounded and lost and has to suffer for a friend, I was making the point that um, hunters consider deer a lot more valuable than ducks and i and i was making the point that no one wants to lose a deer if you shoot and lose a deer it wrecks your day but every time you go out statistics say this isn't me this is statistics saying it. every time you go out you're wounding some birds that are getting away every time the average they think is 25 percent of birds are um that are shot at or wounded and so it's happening every single time what's the difference and i got some feedback from this and I want to read a piece of feedback that I got that really, really made me think. And that's why I'm talking about this again. So I had a, a, someone reach out to me on Facebook through Messenger, a guy named John Brooks. And let me just read what his thought was. And I had never thought of it this way. And so I just want to pose this again to you guys as kind of to be thinking about it and, um, and kind of what your thoughts are. So John said, and this is part of his interaction with me, but this is the one that struck me. I agree people should improve shot selection and put in more time for searching for wounded ducks. I think it comes down to the fact that you can shoot six ducks a day compared to one or two deer a season. That reinforces the notion that ducks are less valuable. I'm sure it's also ingrained in humans that letting a two to 300 pound piece of meat get away is more painful than a smaller duck. Now it's that last one in particular that really made me think. The fact that when you lose a deer you're losing a two to 300 pound of piece of meat. And I really hadn't thought about that. So I'm wondering if I've been looking at this all, all wrong when, I, when 
I've been saying that people value the life of a deer more than the life of a duck. I was thinking like an intrinsic value of that individual species. I really wasn't thinking of the food, the meat of it. And maybe it's way less complicated than what I thought. Maybe it literally is that it's a two to 300 pound piece of meat. And maybe that feeling in us goes way back thousands of years to where hunter-gatherer society, if you did not get that big piece of meat, you weren't eating that night. Or you didn't have it for the winter. And maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe it has nothing to do with the actual individual value of that life. Maybe maybe less people actually worry about that individual and its sufferings or its its value than I do. I don't, I don't know. I re-listened to the episode today because I wanted to get a fresh slant on it in my mind. I wanted to hear what the things that I was saying um, before I brought it back to you guys. Um, and so I, I just posed the question again for you to be thinking about. What is the value of the individual, each individual that we harvest? Is it just valued because it's meat or is the living being valuable at all? Does suffering matter? I mean, we would all agree that torturing animals are wrong. So obviously that we give them some value. I mean, if you are to slowly burn a piece of paper, you're not going to think that that's wrong. If you were to slowly burn a live animal, obviously everyone would agree that was wrong. So we obviously give them value. We assign them value. Um, and so I want I, I want us as a community to be thinking about that more and more. What is the value and how much sway does that value should it have in our ethics of hunting in our shot selection and the amount of time that we look for for birds and and I need to do a better time at that. I know I'm in awe at Matt from Highbury Sportsman and how long he says he looks for wounded birds. He looks for them twice as long as I do. It's something I've got to get better at. I want to get back on the hunt, right? We all can have, hey, we'll find it later. Well, you don't. Where I know that that Matt spends, I know in one of his videos he said he spent an hour trying to find a wounded wounded bird. I've never spent an hour doing that. So maybe that shows my lack of value compared to his be interesting to talk to him about that question. Um, I also had another, um, so guys, make sure if you're listening to this podcast, go in and give me a rating, throw a comment in there in the ratings. Tell me if you're liking it. Give me honest feedback. I would love it. So we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back on here with Matt Parker. Be right back. We are back, and I've got my buddy Matt Farmer on the line here, and he is, the official title is either a biologist or a public land management manager. He's been hunting for 35 years, shooting about 30, so his dad had, how old were you when your dad had you out at first, Matt? Oh, man, six. I went a few six. times when I was four, but hardcore, six years old, yeah. And I'm I'm going to take a sidebar in just a second, because I really want your opinion on this. He's been working the job for 16 years. And so um, I'm going to get his thoughts on the 2022 waterfowl season, but this is actually a full podcast I want to do sometime. So um, I, you, you don't have a son. You've got how many kids do you have? I've got two daughters. you got two daughters. Um, I've got three boys and a girl. None of my boys really like to waterfowl hunt. And honestly, I've got one biological son. I fully expected. I never dreamt because I know you had a strong relationship with your mm -hmm. dad. I had the same with mine. I never, ever dreamt that my own biological son would just turn his back on fishing and hunting. Yeah, and, I mean, 
yeah, my, you know, my girls were into it earlier. It's just, it's something that I really would like them to pursue, but it's, it, I'm not going to push them into it, you know? So right. it's like anything else. If, if they find an interest in it, um, my youngest, she still likes to go. She loves to fish. Um, my oldest used to like to go. She doesn't like to hunt much anymore, but she loves the, the I call them non-consumptive. She likes to hike. She likes to kayak and she loves the mountains. So she still likes the outdoors. So I'm fine with that. Right. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, that's at least, at least something. And my son, he's kind of okay about, he like wants to do a fishing trip once a year, but with the relationship I had with my dad and with you, there's like 95% of my relationship with my dad was through waterfall hunting. That's where we talked right. about everything. That's where we did everything. And honestly, emotionally, it's been a heartbreak to me that yeah. he didn't want to do it. And my, my whole thing was just like you. It's like, it's gotta be, he has to want to do it. Right. He's got to yeah. want to do it. It's got to be his thing. If it's not. So I was taking him out. It sparked my memory because you said you started going out with your, when you were six. I started him. I started taking him when he was six, too. And so I guess my question for you is what do you, what do you think, just off the top of your head, is the right way, the right age to start a little boy and how to do it? Because I, I was like, did I do something wrong? Did I, like, yeah. create some bad experiences? How early do you think kids should, boys or boys or girls should be in the field? It's totally up to how how things progress. I mean, I got a buddy who has a boy. He's like, I think he's three. He might be four. But he's taken him a few times in the afternoon. But the kid gets mad when he doesn't take him now. But, you know, just you see dad come home from a hunt and he's, he's got birds. And, um, you know, he was always really good about showing me the birds. My mom was awesome and let me carry these bloody dead birds all through the house to show them <laughs> off. And, right. And, uh but, you know, just building that curiosity at a young age, um, the gear, it's always around the house. He's always working on hunting stuff, building stuff. And, you know, as, as a kid, I was right in the middle of it. Just, it's just what we did. And, and today in age, you know, it's, it's a lot different with technology and how kids are raised and the busy lives they lead. But I think it's just sparking an interest, um, you know, take a kid out on a dove hunt or an early teal hunt and make it, make sure it's halfway successful. So they're not just there bored out of their mind and don't burn them out. Don't freeze them out. Don't make them get wet. And don't like pheasant hunt. Don't make them trodge through the tall grass, you know, first time yeah. and be miserable. It's, it's a, it's a progressive thing. And, and if, you know, it just kind of leads what their, what their attitude and what their passions lead. If they have an interest in it, that's great. If not, you know, you did what you could and, I don't want to say take it on the chin, but you know, it is kind of, honestly, it's yeah, it, you have to stomach it. I feel it a little bit, you know, having daughters, I kind of, you know, expected it, uh, that they might lose interest, but, but they still, they know what hunting's about. They love eating waterfowl and, and wild game and fish, and they know where their food comes from and they respect guns. Um, they love to go out and shoot guns. So it's, it's all, you know, there's, there's parts that, that have we've gained that are positive from it. And, and there's some things that they just kind of went, went a, a different direction. So, right. I, I wonder, I, I, cause I've reevaluated how I handled him from age six to 10 in his hunting. And I was like, I wonder if I just like, Nope, we hunt. That's what we do. That's mm -hmm. what this family does. That's what we're going to do. He didn't have that in his gut from me. I remember my dad would come home from upland hunting when I was like seven, eight, and I remember him sitting on the back steps cleaning quail. And I can still remember the burnt powder smell. Mm -hmm. And just even at that age with me, something about that burnt powder, oh, I yeah. I loved it. And oh, and yeah. I didn't even realize what that smell was until I started shooting shotguns. Yeah. 
But it's just that smell, the bird, everything about us. I think ultimately, I'm hoping that I didn't somehow screw it up. I think ultimately, kids are either going to be eaten up with it or or they're not. But I do wonder about video games because had I had all these video games, would I even been out back when he was cleaning the birds with the gun? Or would I have been in my room on an iPad or whatever? And I bet you a lot of those like fringe kids, that they they like it, but they kind of need to be more get into the experience i bet we lose a lot of those two video games yeah and then they, they see so much of especially social media now we can get into this later but you know the pile picks and the successes and, and the gear you got to have the top of the line gear these sponsors and you know i'm not going to name any names but but you know when i was younger and i'm sure when you were too it was about the experience it was right. taking a bb gun out on the marsh plunking empty shotgun shell holes when we when i was bored uh, yeah. Dad, Dad, carrying me across the river, the sounds and the sights of the river, the water, just the water going by was cool. It was cool to a kid. Yeah. You know, letting me get dirty, letting me get wet and cold, you know, learn some lessons the hard way. And it's just that, that passion for being outside more than just hunting and just being in the wild places, I think is, is, is where that stems from, where that starts. And right. then, and then the hunting, then the hunting picks up and, and, yeah. but yeah, kids these days, it's just, they get thrown into it and even the kids that maybe not, they don't have a mentor. So there, there's a lot of kids these days that learn how to hunt on YouTube and on videos. Right. That's, how, that's how they learn. So right, it's it a is. different culture. Yeah, it's it's, culture. it certainly is. It, it certainly is. And I wonder how many like concert pianists we've lost to video games. Do you think because a lot of that stuff, playing the piano or even like playing catch, it's like you do it because you're bored. At least when I was a kid, you do it because you're bored. I literally remember sitting on my front steps waiting for like a baseball game, being bored out of my mind. Not sitting there playing with this high technology being bored, but like nothing to do bored. And that's when you play catch. That's when you play the piano, play the guitar. And I just wonder how many just like genius musicians or or whatever, insert whatever, are lost to video games. Not that I'm anti-video games because I actually play a little bit myself and grew up playing them, but... It just makes you wonder. Yeah, it's different. It's just you just don't go outside out of sheer boredom and find something to do. You know, yeah. Kids now, it's like, you know, even like my kids' schools. If it's if it's below like thirty or twenty degrees, they don't go to recess. Man, when I was a kid, if the wind should, we go to recess no matter what. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, but it, it's just yeah, it's just odd. I guess I'm getting old enough now where I see the, the change in in generations and time, and it's it, it's kind of strange to me. Yeah. It absolutely is. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump into the pod, the main stuff we're talking about. Um, as a land manager, I want a couple points here. So the 2022 waterfowl season is coming to an end. I want your personal, how did you personally do in your waterfowl season? And you have a gra- good grasp and eye on how the public is doing because you're out there on a lot of Saturdays, I know you're out there looking around, talking mm-hmm. to people. You you have access to the information data um, that you have to log every day. So what are your thoughts on the 2022 waterfowl season? Um, it's been – it depends on where you're at in the state um, and even in the nation. It's been really spotty. Some some people have had great success throughout the year. For me personally, it's been really um, hit and miss, I'd say. It's probably the best way to put it. I mean – you know, late season, it, you know, it's usually you'll have a stretch or a string of good days. Even early season, you can have some good days. But it's like we'd have one good day and then the ducks were gone. Um, you know, the drought, I think, has had a huge impact on bird movement, 
um, birds sticking around and, and hunters uh, being congregated into certain areas. So that's, that's played a huge role. It's, it's definitely been an odd season um, since I've been where I'm at. It's, we just don't hold the birds. We're not holding the birds. They're just moving on. So it sure has been a weird year. Yeah. So your your actual numbers themselves this year, I from because I know you'll send me some pictures and I kind of have a general feel for how you're doing. It seems like maybe the la the last two years have been a little bit down compared to the the ones previous to that where you were really stacking them up. Yeah, and I thought it'd be a lot more you know selective on when I go. That's that's what I've been doing the last two years because one, there's not a whole lot of birds around and in the end of my life is, is busy with, with kids activities and, and other things. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go unless I'm pretty sure it'll be a decent hunt. Um, or at least we'll have the chance at having a decent hunt, but we've, we've been through some stretches where it's just been, I haven't even really wanted to go and it's been really surprised myself because I've never not wanted to go, but there's been days I get up and it's just like, man, I, I'm just gonna be staring at a sky and dealing with other other people staring at the sky so yeah i usually find some other stuff to do um been doing some more upland hunting and uh some more just hanging out at home so yeah it's, it's been weird I've, you know i've had some good days and i've had some mediocre days but every day's been fun but as far as numbers goes it's probably one of my lowest years i've ever had now, i know that um with uh we're still in in the midst of a drought and i know that you I, at least this is what aiden told me that you said mm -hmm. Um, is that your guys' predictions were, because we have so much drought in the central part of the state, that the birds would would not come through this state quite as much. They'd maybe go either east or west. Number one, did you say that? Is that accurate? Because <laughs> I got it from Aiden. Yeah. And number two, do you feel like that's how it ended up playing out? Yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing for waterfowl. You know, one of our the biggest wetlands in the, in the, in the world is, is dry. So um, we're just a stopover point, but... You know, I only have about 40% of my normal water and our refuge is dry. So the birds we do get, they get pressured off really quick or they get turned nocturnally. And it's nothing for, you know, bird. They don't see water. They're just going to keep going. I mean, or they'll shift one direction or another. It's nothing for them to shift 100 miles or 200 miles east or west uh, just to find water and and, uh, and food. Yeah. Um, whenever I'm in the area, because I had mentioned on the intro to this it's like where where you work i i always call it my hometown marsh because my very first real duck hunt was there all through the early 90s like when we hunted it was it was there so when i go back to that area i'm kind of like going home is kind of how yeah. i feel and i know it literally is your home and it's been your home your your entire life and so when we go there a lot of times you'll come over and either if we're camping or whatever and we'll talk and and so i've I have kind of a, an idea of how you go about and your philosophies of managing a wetland. Mm -hmm. um, but if you could just give us, like, we're about ready to come, come to the close of a season. Let's say February 1, you're going to mm -hmm. probably get your mind back into everything you need to do to produce the best quality habitat. And this area is, and I know you do manage for upland and deer too but i mean this area is like waterfowl 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 yeah you know, pretty much so what what does it look like uh, from february to september one what steps do you take to get and before you answer i know i've had a lot of people come into this state and say what amazes them is the job that um, public land managers do to create waterfowl habitat i mean i've, I've heard multiple people say that it's kind of kansas 
public land managers are, are looked upon, at least from what I can tell, very highly for their ability to create duck food and habitat. So just kind of go through that February to September. Um, so usually f- kind of precede this is the work, the work that we're going to do this summer is not necessarily setting things up for fall of 2023. So certain goals or certain things that we're faced with, we might have to manipulate some habitat in August of this summer and it won't do much good because it'll, it'll be affected this fall, but the following year it'll be phenomenal. So Hmm. we're always thinking several years ahead. Um, We're looking at our, our vegetation, um, moist soil management's a big, a big key. Um, water level management's very important. Uh, some other places across the state can control their water a lot better than I can. But um, February timeframe, the ice comes off, we really get a big spring push of ducks and geese, and we get a lot of snow geese. Um, then toward the end of February, going into March, that's when we start uh, doing some of our slow drawdowns. So when we do our drawdowns, we just don't pull all the boards out of all the structures and let it rip out. Um, there might be a case where we need to do that. If we need to flush some structures out or if we need to move some silt or if we have a big project lined out where we need to get the water off, we'll do that. But we're, we're basically what what we're doing is we're mimicking a tire, an entire yearly cycle of evaporation in a short amount of time. So wetlands have to have a dry cycle. That's, that's what makes these prairie wetlands so diverse and, and, and good is they have a dry cycle to grow this moist soil vegetation. In the past, um, you know, 200 years ago, a wetland might have been wet for three, four, five years, and then it goes dry for three, four, five, ten years, and then it fills back up again. So it's just natural cycles, but with the technology we have and with what we do, we can mimic that on an annual basis to provide opportunity for hunters and waterfowl. So, so does moist soil have to be dry to grow? Will it will it dry in any yes. water? Will it grow in any water at all? Well. You have, you know, emergent or, or there's some there's some vegetation that'll grow underwater. Um, some stuff you see in ponds, you know, some coontail, some duckweed that's very beneficial to some waterfowl. Widgeons, gadwalls, uh, redheads, they love that kind of stuff. But the stuff that most people think about in these prairie marshes, the the, the barnyard grass, which is wild millet, uh, the smart weeds, the bidens, you know, all these natural foods. The, the the soil has to be bare for the most part, and it has to be exposed to sunlight to germinate. Hmm. Um, the soil itself has to be exposed to sunlight. Yes. Okay. Yes. It won't, it won't germinate and the small plants won't sprout in underwater. Um, like even an inch, not even an inch of water has to be completely it, dry. It does. It does a lot better dry. If, it, if it's okay. wet and muddy, it'll, it'll still germinate to a point. Um, but these, these earlier drawdowns, the timing is very important and the speed at which we draw down is very important. Um, and that's what creates food for the upcoming year. A lot of people think we plant everything. We plant all the smart weed. Uh, no, it's 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 all there in the seed bank. It's in the soil. We've just figured out how to how to express that. How to how to set the stage so those seeds will will germinate. Because if we drop down way too fast, it dries out really fast, and then we get an issue with plants that we don't want, like cockleburrs. Um, we get a lot of trees that come in, cattails. So there's a fine line between too dry and too wet. You know, these wetland soils are too wet before lunch and too dry after lunch. So, but we're mimicking evaporation. So sometimes we'll bring it down, you know, an inch a week 
or sometimes an inch. So, you, and how, how do you how do you manage that level of water? I know you said you have boards, and what, the way the bro mm-hmm. boards work is they either you're able to essentially raise the height or lose the height, lower the height mm-hmm. of the where the water exits. Yeah. So there's a diversion point for every wetland. That's where the water goes out, and sometimes we're where a lot of our managers pump from, it's from a different location. Guys that have good access to pumps can stage their water up through the fall, which is very, very beneficial. I can't really do that where I'm at. But as far as the drawdown goes, you know, we can, our boards are four inch boards. So we can either pull one board to have four inches of water leaving at one time, or if we want to really slow it down, some of our guys will even just open up a board and crack it, you know, hmm. an inch, hmm. just to really slow it down. So you can manipulate that and we monitor it on the daily. Um, what that water's looking like and what our what our mud's looking like and then you know pretty soon you start seeing you know it's still kind of wet um, it starts to crack a little bit and all of a sudden we start seeing sprouts of some moist soil coming on and then you know this is usually by the time stuff germinates and gets to growing it's you're talking early summer may june time frame so when we like what time what month will you see your first sprouts um it kind of depends on the conditions usually we'll start we'll start seeing pretty good growth in may Mm-hmm. Um, if not April, but some other regions vary. Um, smartweed is one plant that will germinate at a cooler soil temperature. Mm-hmm. So it's usually, if we do an earlier drawdown, like in March, we usually get a smartweed dominated wetland. Huh. Um, your barnyard grasses and your wild millet or your other grasses, they like a warmer temperature to germinate at. So those are the ones, if we have a pool of water that doesn't dry out until June, or if we get a big shot of rain and we get a little flash flood, and then it comes off and then doesn't get dried back out until June, we'll get an awesome barnyard grass response. So hmm. we figured out Do you out have that, a preference between timing. barnyard grass and smartweed? Like which one do you think the ducks like better? I know, but the barnyard grass, just visually, I know you got the pink yeah. on the, but the barnyard grass, like a big head, big head looks yeah. dang good. We have this conversation a lot between managers across the state. And I think if, if we had to choose one moist soil plant, that we were guaranteed to have that guarantee that ducks love would be barnyard grass. Mm. Um, the seed does is not really viable for a long time once it's floods, but the ducks really seek it out. It's easy to digest. They really love it. Plus the grass itself holds a lot of bugs, which mm. I think we'll get into later. Um, but then you get smart weed. Smart weed's got a better structure. That seed will last a long time because it's waxy coated. If, if you're ever out in the marsh and you find a, a pink flower, you take it and smash it in your hands, there'll be these little tiny black seeds. And uh, those things will last a little longer. Um, but kind of what I look for is, is a, a nice variety of both. Um, I'm not gonna kill smart weed to get barnyard grass to grow. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kill barnyard grass to try to force smart weed. But usually where that, predict, where that comes into play is if we have a, a lot of smart weed, but I also have a lot of um, spike rush or cattails coming on. Um, then those decisions get made throughout the summer. Um, we call them Forb Fridays. One of our managers started doing is we get so busy during the summer working on projects. We try to take a Friday morning, every Friday, and we get out in the marshes and we walk around and we look at the vegetation and we sit there and we bounce ideas off each other and that's where we make decisions. Okay, this spot here is dominated by spike rush or cattails. So do we want to spray it? Do we want to bring a disc in here and disc it? Because if we disc it, it's done for the year. It's just going to be a bare spot or we can seed some Japanese millet into that as well. So that's so then once we hit that July, that August time frame, 
Um, that's where we look at doing some mowing. We have some plants that get really big really quick and try to outcompete our moist soil. So we'll go in and mow it high with a mower uh, to, to help that moist soil grow. And then right before till season, we'll get in and we'll start mowing some shooting holes, some lanes to show water. Um, and then since the zone I'm in and we get a lot of teal, we're well known for our teal. Um, we'll start mowing some shooting holes, you know, in, in, in late August. And then September 1, we'll start putting some water on stuff. So it it goes by quick. Um, it seems simple, and a lot of times it is. I've tried to force it a lot in my younger days. Um, I get frustrated because I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. But I've learned a lot since then. I just kind of roll with the punches and uh, whatever's handed to us. I mean, there's been times where we've reset a wetland. When I say reset, we go and we disc the whole thing. Um, it needs that soil disturbance to keep those early annuals coming back. So what would cause you, what what would be happening for you to make the decision to do that? It would be like a cattail dominated wetland uh -huh. or dominated by spike rush, which is a short green grass that gets like a sod on, uh -huh. on, on the ground. Um, or plants that we don't like. We have a plant called salt marsh aster. It's kind of a woody plant, not very beneficial at all, and it's very aggressive. So we've tried, we'll try experimentation. We'll go in with chemical, we'll try a disc, we'll try a mower, we'll try all three together. Um, it's kind of fun to play around with to see what happens. Um, but there's been times where we've reset a wetland and we, we go in and plant Japanese millet in there just to have a food source. And we spend the money on the millet and the millet gets six inches high and we get a flood and it's gone. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's some heartbreak there. But uh, it, And then there's times when I'm driving around, I'm out in the wetlands and it's, it's July 1st and I'm not seeing much at all for moist soil coming on. I'm thinking, oh crap, what are we going to do? And we just kind of let it roll. By the end of the month, the next thing you know, there's barnyard grass everywhere. So it's, it's, <laughs> right. it's kind of cool. I've, I've seen it go from nothing to headed out barnyard grass in 50 days. Wow. So it's pretty impressive how that yeah. how those plants respond. A couple things that I, I am thinking and find interesting is number one is how seeds work. So the place that I hunt, I'm about three hours from, from where you're at. And um, I've got some pools that are completely unmanaged other than just lake levels. And the thing that I have found interesting, I've been on this place about 10, 15 years, and I monitor them all the time. I go out in the spring. I mean, I really keep close track of these. What amazes me is, like, I'll have a pool that will be lily pads, and it will be lily pads for eight, nine years. And then all of a sudden you get a little bit of a drought where it dries up and just the right conditions, and boom, you go out there and there's smartweed everywhere. I mean, it's like that, that seed is just sitting there. I don't know how many years those seeds can sit dormant like that, but there must be just all sorts of types of seeds of plants just sitting in the soil, just dormant, waiting for the exact right conditions, and then boom, there they are. It's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, you think over the years of all the, you know, if you take a barnyard grass plant and shake it off in your hand, you know, there's literally hundreds of seeds in one plant. So over time, you know, there's billions and billions of seeds in the seed bank. And so, yeah, they, they just sit there and they wait for that perfect time, that perfect soil temperature, that perfect amount of sunlight. Um, you know, if they don't have any competition from other plants, so then, then they're going to express, they're going to, they're going to sprout. Um, it's pretty then you have years like, Yeah. How long do you think seeds can sit in soil and be viable? How many years can they well, sit? There's, there's some research out there. I, I can't say exactly how. I know there's been some plants that have sat in the ground. They, they think for 
hundreds of years and then they sprout. I don't know if they're moist soil plants, but it's pretty neat. If, if they can get low enough where the oxygen can't get to them so they can break down, um, and then you're in the discs through there, and you bring that seed back up toward the top where you can get some oxygen and get some sunlight and a little bit of moisture, it's going to sprout. That's remarkable. Life just pretty wants to, it wants to bloom, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And in our in our state, especially in what we kind of call the prairie marshes, I know cattails are always an issue. And the place where you manage, I know, I've there, you guys have made so many changes that I've seen over the years since like ninety ninety one, where the refuge has been shifted and and switched but i mean before you guys really got a handle on the place it was just so it was so silty that you that just you just couldn't even get in there and hunt it uh you yeah. just you could before this is before mud motors i actually saw my first mud motor ever out on that out on the channel past the s curve the first one i ever saw a guy yeah. came cruising by us but um at that time cattails were taken over and, I mean, we had great years out there because my dad and I, we would work harder than everyone else. We'd get lost in the dark because we didn't have any GPS or anything. Yeah. And we'd get lost in the dark, but he would know some little cat hole in the cattails <laughs> yeah. way back in there that he had found by going up on the hill and looking down in. And we'd get lost, but we'd end up in it. And it was a cool, amazing oh, yeah. place. But I know you can't you can't let that stay like that. No. So kind of what is the deal with cattails? How, why are they so hardy? What's the management? Just anything you can inform me about cattails. So, so cattails are not cattails are not the problem per se. Cattails are the result of a problem. So, the way the wetlands wetlands function is they're like a giant sponge, right? So, they slow flood waters down. They allow the water to spread out. When they do that, the the sediment and the silt will settle in a wetland, and the wetland plants will tie up nutrients. So the water that comes out the backside of a wetland is always pure, a lot better water quality than what was going into it. So with farming practices years ago, back in the Dust Bowl days, all the way to the 70s, you know, before terracing, before windrows, before no-till, before, you know, a lot of these newer practices, that topsoil washed right into every waterway, and there's some places where it still happens. That topsoil washes into these wetlands and it's, you just have this huge buildup of silt over the years. I mean, feet. And when that silt builds up, the water cannot come off. So I talk about it's important to have the water come off. So with the Because you just can't get the water out of the silt because yeah. the silt is just so almost liquidy in a way. Yeah, it's, it's just like muck. It's just a muck. Right. And, and it just sits there. And the infrastructure, it was so bad here because the infrastructure we had at the time there was no channelization to get the water off. It was just a big flat and you had mm -hmm. one weir gate at the bottom of this 500 acre pool. You open the gate and what water come off would come off, but then you had a lot of water that just set, set out there on this mud and mm -hmm. the mud never dried out and it always stayed wet, which is perfect conditions for cattails. I mean, they just went nuts. Cause there wasn't much more soil back in those days. Was there thinking back? Not on much, right. not much. And that's because they couldn't dry them out. So, the first part of our one of our bigger innovations was is we brought in a, an aquatic backhoe it's a it's an excavator with big pontoons and tracks that'll essentially float and they come in and they dug these channels there's a series of channels they dug and those channels people call them boat channels in a lot of places they hunt yeah boats boats run up and down they're not really boat channels they're channels made to get the water off of these wetland flats mm -hmm. so the, the water comes down in these channels down the channels and out the structure so those flats can dry out like they need to 
and it also allows us to go in and manipulate things so the best tools we found to control cattails now is we get the water off we let it dry out and then we run a fire across it which can be very interesting and, and cool to see a fire run across a, a 700 acre flat of cattails yeah, it, gets to, <laughs> it gets to rolling it gets kind of scary at times <laughs> but but they're always under control um all of us public land managers in the state we're all burn certified we carry red cards just like uh um just like uh guys that go out west and fight fires do so we get a lot of training we have a lot of experience but we burn these cattails off and then what that does and that that exposes a lot that it gets a lot of the duff and trash off of the mud mm-hmm. then we get in there with a disc and we just pummel it with a disc as much as we can to expose those cattail tubers um, once we can get those tubers exposed and get that soil turned those tubers will sit there all summer and bake in the heat and the sun and that's that's the goal um, you're not going to get rid of the cattail stand 100 percent in one year um, but we've had some really good results doing it that way um, and then maintenance wise if it's too wet we can in there get in there with a tractor we can't get the water off if we get a lot of flooding we'll uh, come in we'll hire an airplane to come in and spray it with a chemical um, and that's worked out pretty well if we can kind of keep hammering on these certain spots that stay wet uh, we're getting a pretty good moisture response from that just it just thins out the cattails enough that exposes some soil so some some uh, moist soil can come on but it's it's a never-ending deal um, and then we have some invasives that are starting to come into play this phragmites mm-hmm. I know pe- people see them in the waterways and the ditches it looks like just giant stands of pampas grass it's real mm-hmm. tall it's got a big fluffy head on it um, that's even scarier than cattails right now it it puts out shoots to find water um, disking doesn't kill it fire doesn't kill it about the only thing we found to really control it is with chemicals and it's the only chemicals we can put on it um, it's expensive chemical and if we want to apply it by the air it has to be applied by helicopter which is just outrageously expensive so uh, it's 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 been a big challenge now i left unchecked what why is why would fragments be bad for a marsh um it just outcompetes everything you just get a monoculture you just get a blanket of phragmites okay um, it's got no food value for waterfowl it, it can have a little cover value thermal cover in the winter time but um it just it's just that's all there's there it just it's outcompetes just like, everything it outcompetes everything so we can and, all right yeah we're even starting to see it creep up into our uplands now which is scary too so so what 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 do you see as the outlook for the area that you manage as far as how concerned are you about those fragments? Um, it's probably on one of our top priorities. Um, we just got a contract regionally within the state for an aerial application, so a large chunk of our budget now is probably going to be spent annually on trying to control these fragmites. Do those seeds travel through the wind, through water? How are they? Because I know they're coming from the north, aren't they? Yeah, it'll travel by seed, and then the rhizomes, these runners, it'll shoot runners out across the ground, and you'll see it. I had Aiden go out. Aiden works for me, and he uh, went out last year. We, we, we found runners across the mud that were 30 feet long, and they would grow within weeks trying really? to find water. As soon as they find a, some moisture, they'll start putting up shoots, new shoots. Wow. They actually yeah, went on the top of the, of the yeah. soil? Wow. Yeah. It's it's crazy stuff. That is that is interesting. And if you cut it, it'll just make more. So. And you can't and burning burning doesn't do anything either. Burning will 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 thin it out, so maybe we can get in there with 
with some chemical when it re-sprouts. That's about the only thing we found that really works. Yeah. So that pretty much covers, I think you did a good job of kind of explaining. It's a lot more just water management. Because I've, I've talked to you about things, but I've never just heard kind of the breakdown. And I, I guess I really didn't fully realize that it's a lot more just managing water than anything else. Just mm-hmm. constant, constant. And I know you guys always have new projects you want to do and and upgrades for the future uh one thing that always interests me that i i've heard people kind of talk about but i i never fully understand it um this is a state so the way you work is managed is owned by the state managed by the state it's not federal Mm -hmm. how does the funding work does it change much throughout the years how much do hunters contribute to those to those funds so so as an agency like I manage a state-owned property, so a lot of our reservoir properties are owned. They're owned by the Corps of Engineers or the Bureau of Reclamation. So, the Corps of Engineers in the eastern half of the state are more of a flood control situation. They built these reservoirs for flood control. Out western Kansas, a lot of them, those were built for irrigation. So, they're owned by the Corps or the Bureau, and then our agency leases through long-term leases on these properties, and we manage the public land around them. Um, but these state-owned properties, um, they're actually owned by, by our agency. So um, I'll go way back to, you know, hunting, hunters are the first conservationists. You know, they, they saw, they had concerns. Uh, a lot of it stemmed from market hunting of waterfowl. They saw things were just disappearing. People were shooting way too many birds. Um, it was just kind of a free-for-all then they decided there needed to be some kind of regulation and that's kind of started some, some, uh, the, the start of game wardens, uh, gamekeepers, they called them. Um, and they started making laws to regulate, uh, wildlife consumption. So back in the thirties, um, there was a huge funding need for wildlife conservation. And there was this act that Congress, I don't remember who the senators were that introduced the bill, but probably Pittman-Robertson because the, the grant's called Pittman-Robertson. But it was an act in 1937 that passed through Congress, um, and that money is comes from excise tax dollars through the sale of hunting equipment. Guns, ammo um, is the predominant, predominant source of funding. But that money is funneled into the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So... With that, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has this pool of money. So this, then they divvy that money out based upon how many hunters and f- hunter hunting licenses they sell. So um, states that sell way more than other states get some more money. Uh, it's through a grant, and there's a match involved, so our agency has to cover a certain match. But the great thing about this Pittman-Robertson grant is, is um, it cannot be touched by legislatures other than other than conservation and natural resource uh, funding sources, I guess. So I guess what I'm trying to say is legislators can't use this money for building roads or, or um, doing municipal work. It all has to go right back into conservation work. So that money's solely dedicated for wildlife and habitat conservation. Mm-hmm. So along those lines, in 1950, Dingle Johnson came out with an act that's very similar, and that covers fishing. So they use excise tax from fishing equipment 
to fund uh, fish, wildlife, habitat, and restoration and conservation efforts. So it's, those have been really huge grants um, for us since then. They, they've been kind of what has kept wildlife conservation afloat, and our state's no different. Um, statewide, hunters contribute around $22 million in Kansas annually, which is a lot, and that's through yeah. license, license tags and grants. Um, nationwide since 1937, I did some research here, more than $14 billion has been raised through these, this legislative acts. Um, so that's, that's impressive. Right. But um, then with that, we use those grants to leverage monies on, like on my area, we use that money to help with operations. Um, we also do some farming on the area, so we have a little bit of in- income from that. But uh, we use that money for, you know, buying equipment, uh, purchasing land, just general operations because operating a wetland is very expensive. So the vast majority of the funding comes from ammo sales, gun sales, and hunting licenses. Yeah. And, and Kansas is, you know, we are a state agency, but we do not pull any money out of the state general fund. So when people, I, it really rubs me wrong when people say, well, my tax dollars, those are tax dollars that work. Well, no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your, your, your tax dollars don't even, we don't, they don't touch us. You know, oh, that's now great. if you buy a hunting license, you have a say, Right. you know, you 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 belong to this club. But if you're just Joe, Joe Blow driving down the road and seeing us out there on a tractor and, and have that comment, it, it kind of, it gets me worked up sometimes. Where do you think waterfowl would be without across the country public land and public land managers and the Pittman Roberts Act and and licensing sales uh, where do you think I know you don't have any scientific to pull from but where would we be without what the oh, I, government does I think we'd be they'd be really hurting I mean we, we all saw it back in the late 80s uh, when the waterfowl populations crashed um, mm-hmm. a lot of their nesting habitat was being um, farmed you know I understand, you know, farmers have to make a living and we've got to feed people, but there's a fine line where we need to start conserving these things. And, you know, hunters brought back white-tailed deer. They brought back turkeys. So, and, and the countless non-game species that weren't even tied to hunting yeah, uh, were brought back. And that's no different than waterfowl. I mean, these organizations came on board, you know, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, uh, all these places. And their sole purpose is is to provide and, and restore and, and protect habitat for these animals because that's what it all boils down to and and waterfowl are unique because they move so much through migration is we got to have that throughout their flyaways so it's it's been a huge deal and, and without it um it's kind of scary to think where they would be right now it's pretty funny you get anti-hunting groups or just the casual person right where it's just mm-hmm. like they think hunting's bad hunting's wrong how can you do that and what they don't understand is a lot of these animals are here because of us it's like Mm -hmm. you take away us you take away them so do you want to have millions of ducks and us eat a fall a small percentage of them or would you want to have a much i mean certainly there would still be ducks around but i mean the numbers would be drastically less and that that type of information just gets lost on people that are anti-hunting. One thing when I talk to people that they don't understand, because what I say to them, they're like, oh, you know, I, I talk about how much I love the ducks and how beautifully mm-hmm. they're Oh, you love them, but then you go out and kill them and eat them. It's like, my dad taught me this because I was, I was real sensitive 
from the time I started hunting about kill. It's like we don't love the individual. We appreciate the individual. What yeah. we love is the species. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a crazy thing because you you show me an anti hunter or somebody that even doesn't like hunting next to a hunter, I guarantee you the hunter knows way more about that animal than that anti hunter ever right. will. And appreciates yeah. it more, right? Yeah, and, and the things that we pursue being with them, we, we learn about them and we understand them and that's how, you know, and and I guess my argument too goes clear back to, I mean, that's that's what's in our DNA is, is gathering and hunting and mm-hmm. being a predator. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't feel bad for being a hunter. It's part of who I am. It's part of who we are. It's in our blood to, you know, we've, we've not been hunting for only a couple hundred years. I mean, yeah. that's not a very long amount of time. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> so, it's not. And, and, you know, you, you find there's, there's people that you can get, you know, there's people that you just kind of ignore and blow off because you're not going to convince them anyway. But, but, um, you know, you can dive into the money thing. I feed my family thing. Yeah, that's good. But then you also can, there's the argument that, um, you know, mother nature is very cruel with, with my line of work. I deal with the public a lot and there's a deer that's sick or there's, there's a coyote a coyote that has mange that needs to be put down or they feel really bad for these animals and that's a perfect place and time for me to say or there's a there's a duckling that gets eaten by a by a by a fox and they just can't believe it it's like nature is very cruel you know just for an animal because mother nature is, it builds a surplus there's a surplus of animals because they're going to die of disease they're going to die during the migration you know and they're going to get preyed upon by other predators so Mother Nature has to make all these animals just to keep the keep the balance right to keep to keep the species productive but not producing too high and and if the productivity is too high then she's got a horrible way to bring them back down through disease and we're seeing that right now with bird flu um, that's Mother Nature's way hunters aren't doing the job with like snow geese you know hunters aren't right. getting it done so she's going to take over and she's going to try to bring it back down. So I I know you mentioned snow geese and bird flu. Has is the bird flu? Because I've been hearing a lot about it. I know Jordan was just seeing tons of dead teal up in the Mississippi River area, and I've been hearing about the snow geese all season. Is the bird flu more in the snow geese than it is into other waterfowl? It seems to be right now. Um, we're all seeing it in Canada geese. Um, I haven't seen any in ducks or heard any in ducks locally, but mostly in snow geese right now, just because they're you know they're so gregarious they're always together you know they they don't spread out much they're always touching each other um and we've seen it a lot of years with avian cholera as well that gets to be an issue sometimes but it's not as widespread and it's not as highly pathogenic as bird flu is so like right now is you know if, if you handle a bird that has bird flu and you don't know it that stuff stays on you and it stays on you for a while so what we're doing is like you know if you're handling dead birds and you have chickens at home, you're kind of screwed. Don't go around the chickens because, you know, you can kill your whole flock. So it's kind of been a big deal. Um, can you eat the, the meat of the birds with the flu? Right now, we are we don't have any recommendation as whether you do or you don't. Um, personally, I don't think it'll hurt you. There's been no evidence to show the bird flu passing from birds to people. Um, but it's totally up, up to the hunter in, in my opinion. Um, 
And as an agency, we can't go out and put down a bird that's sick from bird flu. That, that's another example of Mother Nature being cruel. We just can't go out and, and dispatch this bird because it might have the bird flu. Um, it just kind of, we got to kind of let, let nature take its course and what happens, happens. Yeah. I think this is a good point to get in this question. I know you um, watched or listened to the first ep- public episode I put out where I went really in-depth about the value of different animals, the the value of a duck versus the value of an individual deer. And so it's something I kind of want to ask guests when I get when I get them on here just to get their thoughts on it. How do you view it or what are your thoughts on the value of an each individual duck? I mean, personally, I think a lot about I, I shoot a bird and I look at it in my hand and you think about how old is this bird? Because once they're over a year old, you really don't know unless it has a band on it. But you think of the miles it travels and everything it sees and everything it's avoided through its life. And how can you not respect that? You know, it's it's lived for that long. Um, I don't take it to heart. You know, I don't take it extremely personally. Like you said, I respect, I, I appreciate the animal itself. And I'm not just going to go throw it in a ditch or throw it in the trash. It's going to get consumed. Um but then you see things here and there and you hear stories, people treating them like pests and they just shoot them and let them lay. There's people that do that with deer. There's people that do that with pheasants. Uh, there's people that do that with everything. I think it comes down to ethics, um, what you're taught. Um, it's, it's, there's a broad spectrum, but me personally, I have a lot of respect for them. So, you know, when I do harvest birds and shoot birds, I'm gonna treat them right. Um, they're going to get taken home, they're going to get clean, and they're going to get consumed. What would you think about, like, a single deer versus a single duck? Do you, would you see that as equal value? Would you say the deer holds? So if you're going to have to, like, you shoot a deer, it gets away, it's wounded, you know it's wounded, it's laying out there. Same thing happens with the mallard duck. Which one are you going to feel worse about and why? Well, the deer always seems to get more credit because it's a large animal it's a big game animal they live a little bit longer um and it can feed more people maybe but i guess in in my eyes you know there's a point where it's got the same value i mean i hate sailing birds um we spend a lot of time looking for down birds but we'll probably spend more time looking for deer um they still hold a lot of value in my opinion i just i never really thought about that i'm not a big deer hunter um it's mostly a meat thing to feed my family, but we use a lot of we eat a lot of duck too. So um, I can't say that I would give one more value than the other. You know, I had a guy tell me he messaged me. I actually read the comment on the intro to this, and I never really thought about it. And I wonder, like you said, we're only a couple hundred years removed from hunting to sustain your life. Like if we didn't hunt another day, we'd be fine. We'd still yeah. be wanting to lose a little weight. <laughs> yeah. But right. this guy was talking about when you lose a deer, you're losing two, 300 pounds worth of meat. Maybe not yep. quite that much. And yeah. so it could be just because I know like if, if I were to lose a deer and I knew it was wounded versus a single duck, if I lose one single duck, I'm not thinking about it a couple hours later, probably. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I lose a single deer, I'm probably, uh, it's going to stick with me a little longer. And I wonder if part of that is the fact that we're only a couple hundred years from our, from our ancestors. Like if you lose that much meat, right, that's a big damn deal. 
right? Yeah. It's, so I wonder if that an, plays into it a bit. I think it does. That makes that's a good point. It's an instinctual thing. You know, right. I've, I've put in this effort and this energy to kill this animal, you know, and sometimes, you know, back in the day, it was a lot harder to kill a deer than maybe it was a duck. Um, when we really had to try to kill things, but yeah, I, I think that's, that's a good point. Cause yeah, yeah, that, that's, that can feed my family for a long time. A duck right. can feed half of my family for one meal. So yeah, I thought that was an interesting point that mm. he made. Well, let's move on to kind of, um, ducks diet and it's not something i had really thought about most of my knowledge on ducks eating insects comes directly from you <laughs> so i'm really i know you've told me a lot of interesting things about insects and ducks diet so just give us whatever you got on what role do insects play in a duck's diet insects are really cool and it's it's fairly new science really we really didn't know ducks ate in bugs until like the 80s um, Lee Fredrickson is kind of, uh, he's a professor down in Southeast Missouri. He's done a, his, his whole life. He's done nothing but work with ducks and wetlands. Um, some of us kind of, he's one of the fathers of moist soil management. They, they figure out seeds, but what's his name again? Lee Fredrickson. Okay. Um, but he has, he had a lot of grad students that have come on, um, as awesome wetland managers and great people in, in, in the world of waterfowl. But. From what I gathered from him, I've been to a couple of his trainings and some of his talks is, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service would not allow universities to go out and harvest birds to research them right then. So they had to deal with hunter shot ducks. So guys would be out in the marsh all morning long. They'd shoot their birds. So these guys would take the birds and then they would take them to a laboratory, open them up, uh, do a necropsy and, and see what they're eating. And... 60s and 70s and even in the 50s all they were finding were all these moist soil seeds okay this is what we need to be managing for is these seeds well back in the 80s things shifted with the service as the universities were then allowed to go out and shoot a bird and right away open it up and what they found is a fresh shot bird was was full of aquatic insects i mean just full especially in the spring and what they realized is is since aquatic insects are mostly water and very soft, you know, even though they're, they're, they're an invertebrate, they're, they're soft. And after a duck is shot, they continue to break down and digest those. So they weren't seeing those back in the fifties and sixties because they were having, they were in the marsh for several hours before they were able to get cut open. So once they started diving into these insects, they started doing a lot of sampling in the wetlands. And so we got a lot of really good information is, these, you know, insects are very high in protein. They're easy to digest within minutes, like I was just saying. Very high in calcium. That was one of the big things, is especially during spring migration. These ducks are exclusively eating bugs, and especially hens. So for egg development, um, they're very important. So the data shows that hens target insects more so than males? Absolutely. Like oh, wow. wood, duck, wood duck hens have to eat. There's some research out there. They have to consume like over 4,000 bugs a day just to meet their demands for egg development. Wow. It's insane, but um, they're also very important for duckling, for brood rearing ducklings, because that's what ducklings eat once they hatch. You know, mom takes them out to the water, they're eating bugs. There's not many seeds in June, you know, stuff's still growing. So they're, they're targeting bugs as they develop. And they're also important for molting, that high protein, um, so ducks can go through their summer molt. So um, these wetland plants are not only very beneficial for for the seeds they provide in the wintertime and the early spring. But I think 
through the migration cycle. Um, it's just, it's crazy how important bugs are in their diet. And even we'll see, we'll see mallards late season here that are shot and they're just chock full of snails. Hmm. You know, they're, they're hanging out in a, in a wetland moist soil area. Then all of a sudden in the spring, I see them around some brush or some trees. Well, the brush and trees usually attract more snails, more crustaceans, a lot more calcium. And that's where all the ducks are. They're in there just gorging themselves on snails. They digest so, the shells and everything of a snail? Yes. I mean, obviously yeah, they all, have to. It all, yeah, it all breaks down. Okay. And, you know, the mallard is king in this country. And if you really think about it, everybody thinks mallard tastes better than everything. I get a kick out of Jake from uh, Chasing Green because they call gadwalls, you know, gut duck. Right. Uh, you know. The gadwalls and pintails are pretty specialized in what they eat. Um, they target certain plants. They're kind of like a cow. You know, they like these certain types of aquatic plants. They'll eat a little bit of everything. But mallards are so widespread, and mallards are so prolific because they're a generalist. They'll eat anything. They'll eat fish. Yeah. You know? And that's why they do so well. Um, and they'll nest. They have a lot of uh, – they'll nest pretty much anywhere. They're not as specialized like a pintail. So um, that's just what's really neat when you dive into – to once you get into the bug side of wetland management, it's a whole other realm. Um, there's Is this starting to change the way people manage? I think so, but I, I think that's just the that's just something that comes with moist soil management. You're just going to get the bugs there. Yeah. Um, they may not come on till later in the year. I don't see a lot of bugs early early fall when we just freshly flood up an area, but come February, um, there's just bugs everywhere. So. Hmm the life cycle of these insects match up with the migration patterns of these ducks. So that's another one of mother nature's really cool things is the timing of, of these species interaction with each other. So I've got a question that I've wanted to ask you for a while. We were hunting one time and it's me and three other guys and we were up on the Northwest side of the property on a teal hunt mm -hmm. and we were doing pretty well, but all of these blue wings were flying way in the back and landing in this little area that I had looked at. I'm like, why in the heck are they landing back there? It's not barnyard grass. It's not smart weed. What in the world are they doing back there? And I, I think, I don't know if you were talking to us after the hunt or sometimes maybe you walked in, you're like, well, that little hole is full of bloodworms. Yeah. What is a, what's a bloodworm? It's, it's, it's just a, it's a worm. It's kind of transparent color. It's they're really, really tiny. But they're very prolific in those. They're it's just a little morsel of protein, and they're easy to eat. They're easy to catch. Um, I think there was a study at Cheyenne Bottoms with pintails. Pintail hens were eating like over a kilogram of bloodworms a day, which is just <laughs> unreal number of worms. <laughs> right. But you know, you know what teal like? They can walk around in that mud right. where it's just a few inches deep, and they just put their head down, and they're filtering all that through all that mud, and that mud is just solid with bloodworms. They that little hole they had was like 30 by 30 yep. and it was like way off. There wasn't hardly any water in it at all. You would never look at it and be like, Oh, I'm sitting up right there. And they were just, man, they had found that spot. And, and it's a, it's a buffet. A lot of people don't think about these animals really have to weigh how much energy is it going to take me to eat this stuff? Because, um, I talk a lot about it with, with predators and on pheasants, like hawks on a pheasant. People say hawks eat a ton of pheasants. In some cases they might, but if they're going to expend this energy to eat a bird that's almost as big as them, that's a fight, you know. Right. The 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 risk versus reward has to balance out some way. So, so the easiest meal I can get 
that's where that's where they're going. I mean, right. I don't have. I got. I can stand in one spot, and spin a circle, mm-hmm. and fill up my belly full of full full of blood worms instead of swimming around in a cornfield or swimming around in in the woods looking for an acorn. Um, if I can have something I can stand in and eat what I need, that's that's where they're going to be. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, you're talking about hawks. Every hawk in Kansas is a chicken hawk. Oh, <laughs> it's a chicken hawk. Farmers will shoot the chicken hawks. Get my oh, chickens. <laughs> All right, corn versus versus moist soil. I know in my area, I do have the managers planting planting corn, and I and I love it because that's where all the hunters go. It's a hunter <laughs> magnet. <Yeah. laughs> so when I see corn, I'm probably not going to hunt it, although I might, but I'm probably not. But I know that it's going to attract a lot of attention. And I've not seen you plant corn before, so what yeah, what's we, the deal with that? We planted some in the past, but. Going back to Lee Fredrickson, his my favorite saying that he always had to us wetland managers was plant the corn at the gate because that's where everybody's <laughs> going to go. <laughs> and, and it's showing. I, there's some guys in Missouri that hunt here a lot, and they always hunted the corn out of layout boats. And they come here and hunt. And they're like, man, we're shooting a lot more pintails. And, man, the, you know, we can hide our layout boats in here. And we, we're just slamming mallards and, you know, on these nice sunny days. You know, in the corn, it's unless it's really cold, we don't have much luck. And so I said, well, go hunt the moist soil. The next year they come back and like, dude, we don't even hunt the corn anymore. <laughs> we, we we pass everybody and go to the moist soil. But I, I think corn came about from a lot of it was social media and videos. Um, I'm not going to name names, but you know, there's there's some guys that put some stuff out, and it's kind of been that way for years. Is you know, you plant corn, you flood it, and you just hammer the ducks. I mean, it's what you have to do if you want to kill ducks. And I think we've come to find over the years that that's not necessarily the case. Um, number one is just your input costs. Um, I mean, I've got some breakdowns here from some guys that do plant corn. They plant 250 acres of corn, and this was probably four or five years ago. Just that 250 acres, you, you go through the process of buying the seed, planting the corn, so you got that invested. So you got to fertilize it, and you got to keep chemical on it to keep it growing. Um, just on that 250 acres, it cost them almost $70,000. Wow. And if you get a flood, you're screwed. It's gone. You got to replant. That same 250 acres, I can do a, a slow water drawdown on, and then I get 250 acres of a thousand pound of the acre barnyard grass and smartweed, and it costs me zero. Yeah. Um, and corn ducks have only been eating flooded corn for just a little bit of time. They've been eating this moist soil for hundreds of years. That's what they've evolved to, to eat. And the best way I explain it to hunters and people that ask is. Corn to me is equivalent of white bread for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we we can live off of it, but it's not going to give us everything we need. So, you know, c- corn provides carbs, some fats, and a little bit of protein. It, it it sustains a duck, their body condition for short durations. So these cold snaps when they hit corn hard, they're just trying to survive. Um, it's expensive to grow, like I just said. It's expensive to maintain. There's also some baiting issues you could run into potentially, and it's also expensive to pump. You got to put water on it, so you know that 70 grand is not counting what it costs to pump. Um, but then you know you get into the moist soil plants. They moist soil plants provide a lot more of the, the essential proteins and minerals that birds need to survive uh, and continue to grow through migration. There's a diversity of seeds there, so it'll hold more invertebrates, like we just talked about. Um, these moist soil seeds are they're made to live in water so they last a lot longer when they're flooded 
Um, they provide the nutrients needed for migration, improved body condition for courtships, uh, egg development, molting, all that stuff that we've talked about. And essentially, moist soil is going to feed more ducks. It's cheap to produce. It's cheap to maintain. And you're able to manipulate moist soil. If it grows naturally, I can go in there and mow it. Um, if I plant corn, if I drive my ranger through my flooded cornfield to go to my blind and I'm knocking corn stalks over, I'm baiting. Really? So, yes. I, I didn't realize that that, I know yes. the baiting laws are weird, but that's uh, that's a surprising one. Yeah, so, so some guys, if they're going to use corn stalks to blind up, put on their pit blind or put on a blind, they're going to have to take the, the ears off each individual corn plant and take them completely off out of the field. <laughs> um, but, but moist soil, I can go in there and mow it two days before yeah. I flood it. Yeah. If you do not, if you so if you plant Japanese millet, then the same baiting laws apply, right? Yes. So yes. if you plant it, then you if it's if it's natural, it's not baiting. If you plant it, it is. Yeah. If you plant okay. it, you have to follow. In, they call it normal agricultural practices, is what the, the feds call it. Yeah. So a lot of people think that flooding corn is baiting, and I can see the argument both ways. It's not a natural practice, but. Mm. I've had some good duck hunts in flooded corn, but I've had a lot more phenomenal hunts in moist soil. Um, We see it here, you know, guys that, not a lot of people flood corn around me, but out east especially, they'll go to the flooded corn when it gets cold. When they got to put an ice heater out, they hammer ducks in the corn. Mm -hmm. But we get a 50 degree day and the ice melts, the guys in the moist soil hammer them even harder. So, and it's consistent. Um, Yeah, I've seen seen mallards feeding on um, millet just standing on ice in, in marshes. I mean, mm-hmm. they just, if, and I don't know if this is right or not. It seems, I feel like that in January, I see more ducks on millet. It's like for some reason in January yeah. and my data is just my perception. So it could be not correct at all, but just, I feel like in January I see him in millet, especially if, the, if they can get to it and find it, they're going to hit it because it's, they're probably starting to get some bugs. If the water's not frozen, they're starting to get that feeling that we need to start going back north, so we need to start shifting our diet a little bit. Mm-hmm. And if they do find seed, it's easy to digest. It's hard to digest a big, heavy corn seed. Yeah. Um, but I get a lot of hate for it. Guys swear they have to kill them in the corn. But we have some properties in the state that exclusively planted corn. And since they got away from that due to cost, uh, flooding, they've shifted to moist soil and People can say what they want. The data doesn't lie. They shoot a lot more birds with more right. soil than they, than they ever did in the corn. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. Let's move on to a little bit of weather stuff. We'll kind of finish off with that. I mean, I've been watching this area since the early 90s, and but I've been a lot more tuned into it kind of since you guys have done a lot of the, the renovations um, and you're able to control the water. And it just seems like there's very, very few perfect years where it's just like it's exactly like we want it's either it's it's either in drought or it's in flood and so no first of all what is if you could if i could pick too much water flood not enough water drought and you had to pick between the two for the next year what would you pick on my property i pick flood yeah just why is that because because i can get the water um i can only pump a small portion of my area the majority of it's through gravity flow Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to have some, some water up high in these higher pools to get them down, uh, to flood some good moist soil stuff. Some of our other properties in the state, as long as they can pump out of the river, they got a big protection levy. 
they would probably prefer a little bit drier like this year some of our properties out there are doing really well but or maybe if we're in the middle of two years of straight flooding you would say drought (laughs) yeah you are had it with droughts at this point (laughs) yeah you know and back to that trying to force things you know it used to kill me on on a year we get a flood because we'd be in the middle of a project it's inevitable you bring equipment to a wetland to work on it it's gonna start raining yeah (laughs) maybe that's what i need to do but um (laughs) but yeah so you know these last two years it's been so dry we've been getting a lot done Um, one of our other properties we manage we're able to get a a tractor and a disc in there to to disc cattails where we haven't even been able to think about taking a tractor in the last 10 years so um you know, the, the mantra we have is when it's, when it's dry, you work in the wetlands. When it's wet, you work in the uplands. Huh. So, so that's, that's kind of what we're doing. We're, we're hammering away at, at things all winter with this warmer weather. Uh, we've been, we've been making a lot of progress. So hopefully that'll pay off if we can, can get some moisture. So on a drought year, so this is our kind of our second year in a row. And I don't know about you, I am just absolutely fed up with lack of water around here. But what, what adjustments do you have to make or kind of what's your, how does your job switch in a drought? Usually, usually July 4th is kind of a trigger for us. It's when we start making decisions on water, when we're going to start holding water, because we're basically a wide spot in a creek. So we can start staging some water up and we do deal with water rights. So just like with private landowners, with pumping and diverting water, we have water rights through the state that we have to follow. And during these drought years, when the river levels are at a certain elevation low, we get put in something called minimum desirable stream flow. So when that trigger goes off, we're informed that we cannot divert or pump water on certain water rights. So I have some pools on my property I haven't been able to even think about putting water on since July. Um, But we have some other areas that are senior water rights. So with senior water rights, they're older and we can pretty much do whatever we want with the water. So July 4th, we start looking at water levels what the forecast is looking like. So it's okay. It's dry. It's really dry. We need to put boards in and hold what we can get in these in senior water rights starting now. And that's kind of what we did this year is we had some, a few small timely rains to let us store some water. And I was able to move that down and flood some good moist soil habitat. And then we were able to get some supplemental water from uh, irrigation district up above us after they emptied out for the year, they give us a little bit more water, um, which kind of saved our season. Um, I was still able to flood about 40 to 45% of, of normal, which is way under what I want to do, but it, it, it kind of saved us because we could have been bone dry like a lot of other places. And Yeah, for a drought, you guys. And I will say, and this goes to commend you on the job you're doing, this is the second both really bad drought years we've had in a row, you have had more water than everyone else. So yeah. you're doing something right in the way that you're man in the way that you're managing it. Yeah, it's, sure. some days we pull our hair out, but it's a it's a daily struggle sometimes, and it's the daily frustration. But but it showed we had a lot of hunters this year, and they were grateful just to have a place to go, mm-hmm. and whether they shot birds or not, and a lot of them did at times. So. Yeah, it, it was tough because it did consolidate the hunters, but oh, yeah. um, it was definitely it's a beautiful area, beautiful marsh. Um, anything you want to add about floods and, and water? Too much water? Oh, too much water. Too much water is just hard on our infrastructure. Um, we're still making repairs from 2019 flooding. That year was just crazy. It was good for duck hunting. 
um, but it was really hard on us. It, it eats out levees, it washes out structures. Um, it, it can be tough at times. So I like that middle of the road. <laughs> you know, I'd like to receive our annual rainfall and I don't want to receive it all at once, but if I can get it that last half of the summer, that's when I really like it. Cause then, then that really, I, I get really confident. I can get a little more liberal with how I'm managing my water. Uh, where we want to move it to and, and what we want to flood instead of just really trying to consolidate and hold it where we can. Yeah. As just a spectator, um, a lot of the places I hunt in my area are kind of reservoirs. So mm-hmm. what I what I personally look for is a little bit low on the rain side so that the reservoirs get just about half a foot mm-hmm. below pool, but enough water that all that smart weed and stuff can grow in. And then right about mid-August, the whole lake comes up three or four feet and that's yeah. just that's when you get smart weed in all the places you want even in some places you didn't know there was smart weed there and that's just like sets up perfect yeah i mean years like this is what really makes you appreciate years like that mm-hmm. you know when we have perfect conditions um, right but you know the birds respond that's one thing in my job they've if it's a drought year you think they're all gone we've had two years where it's just kind of gotten bad um, the year before these last two years in 2020, we had a really timely rain and we had the, one of the best seasons we've ever had. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to getting back to that. Some, some timely rains and, and a good, a good migration. So yeah, we'll see sure. what happens for sure. Well, last thing, last thing we're going to hit on, I know that your style of hunting, my style of hunting is pretty similar. Our ethics is pretty similar. And so sometimes we kind of bitch and moan to each other through text about different things we see going on and mm-hmm. and one thing that that you and i have both kind of complained about is the um move towards big group hunting now i know like down in arkansas where jake was from this is a common place mm-hmm. hunting 7 10 13 but in the midwest is from my experience and correct me if i'm wrong it's a new phenomenon and to me i think it was brought upon by youtube channels promoting it showing it a frames so take the floor what are your thoughts about big party seven to 13 guys all hunting at the same time um it's it's fine if you're in the birds i guess my big thing is what i see a lot of is i see 10 guys show up and how'd you do oh we shot a four man so you shot less than half your birds right and and then another and then also it's it's shifted there's a culture now you know Back when we were younger, guys would get there early, just a few guys, and you'd hunt till nine, ten o'clock, and you'd leave. And when you got ten guys and you got to kill fifty mallards, these guys are there all day, and they're hunting together. And what we're seeing is it's it's just they're shooting for a ten man pile. Mm-hmm. And one, that's illegal. And two, I don't think it's very ethical because I can walk up to a group of guys and there's a guy, there's a pile of ducks sitting next to one guy, and they might need one hen mallard to fill everybody's hen limit. And here comes a hen at 60 yards and everybody's blazing away at it. Right. So, you know, that puts somebody over their hen, hen limit. And I can point to a guy and say, which ducks are yours? And they don't know. So it's just the limit's not five birds or six birds. Now it's it's 40. We can kill 40. And that goes back to what you've talked about a lot with you know, guys getting caught up in the moment, taking long shots and sailing birds and the confusion and not knowing who shot what. And I'm fine with hunting a larger group. I've hunted in five or six guys, and but, but we've always been, I shot two 
or I shot one, or if, if three birds come in, it's like, okay, you guys shoot. Or right. if there's a ton of birds and it's really good, it's awesome. I love taking turns on singles right. and pairs. You just go down the line because then you can rib on your buddies and put some pressure on them and make the hunt fun. But this whole pile picture, the Instagram photo of, you know, we killed 80, we killed 80 birds and it's not a good hunt unless we kill 80 birds. That, that just really rubs me wrong. Uh, you know, so as I know, part of your job is you're actually an enforcement officer. Also, I know that was yeah. that last couple of years you had to get that title. You had to go and do some training, or has it been longer? Uh, it's been since I've been here. It's been my whole career. Okay, yeah. I thought I thought it shifted or something. But so yeah. go through the legalities of because what you're com- what I hear you complaining about is basically group shooting, yeah. and go through what are the specific legalities about who shoots what, how you pile the birds. And because so, you said you said the pile the you said the like a fifty bird it's illegal. What what about that pile is illegal and where are the legalities? Well, it's like I can pick one duck out of that pile. Who shot this duck? And mm-hmm. nobody can tell me who shot it. So I can point to a guy. How many ducks have you killed? Well, I I don't know. So if you are hunting in a group, everybody needs their own strap, or everybody needs to have a pile of birds next to them. You know, um, if you're going to hunt ten guys, fine, but divvy up the birds. There's a lot of times we'll see boats come to the ramp with a pile of birds on the front deck, and mm-hmm. and somebody's over their limit. You know who's going to claim all these birds? So I tell guys, you know, buy a game strap. They're really cheap. Buy some zip ties. Just put the zip ties around their neck when you haul them out, because that is your daily bag limit. That's what the law says. You can't have 50 birds. If you got 50 birds, you're getting a ticket, and it's going to be very expensive. So, and that goes back to. We'll sit there, and it's really hard to watch to determine from a law enforcement standpoint who's shooting what birds. Um, yeah, because group hunt or not, you only get five birds. Yeah, and get, and in those situations, the best hunters are going to shoot more birds. The best yeah. shooters are going to shoot more birds if it's just you know eight guys. No matter what, everyone's pulling the trigger. Someone's yeah. shooting over over the limits. Some guys say, "Well, that doesn't matter." We, as long as we have a certain number of birds, well, legally it does it does yeah. matter and it does make a difference. Yeah, it does make a difference. And and for me, I mean, I don't like hunting huge groups. F- up to five guys, I'm pretty comfortable with. But then it gets into this is a buddy's buddy, or this is a friend of a buddy's buddy. I don't know who that is. You know, and, right. and I don't know if I trust this person, and especially if I have my dog. And it's hard to hide a lot of people and be yeah. successful, you know. Yeah. So when it's hard, to, you know, if if I if there's three of us hunting, we can finish birds it right with their feet down over the decoys. But if there's seven of us, they're going to start kicking out at 40, 50 yards. Well, then we start taking those shots. Yeah. And and then you get into that wounding loss, and it just it, it goes south pretty quick. I mean, it can it can be fun, and there's a lot, I hear a lot of hooping and hollering going on when it's happening, but it's just this culture has started. And I don't know where it's come from, but it's 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 really bad. So, as a manager, you know, with the wounding loss and all that pressure on those birds, that's going to push them out even faster. Mm-hmm. So then I'm going to start thinking about, okay, I need to close this pool so, so many days a week to let the birds get in there and use it to have, one, so the birds can use it and stay here, and two, so people can have a quality experience. Or I'm going to start limiting the number of shells. There's been a lot of areas down in the south that have limited. You can only take 25 shells in per person per day or 15 shells. I would love it, that. It's hard to enforce. Um, but we're getting a lot of pressure on us right now to to control hunters, non-resident versus resident. And our, 
our higher ups, we're all trying to work on it and have ideas. But what we're finding out is every every property is so different, and the needs are different, and the hunters are different. But I think something's coming down the pipe. I just don't know what it's going to be and what decisions are going to be made. But uh, but yeah, this this culture and and this pressure is really changing how we're going about our business. Right. And there's there's certain things I love to see. I love I love seeing I love seeing five high school kids come out here. You know, they still come out here in their beater truck. And then I got I got twenty year olds that come from Louisiana with a with a jacked up diesel and a thirty thousand dollar rig. And you know. <laughs> more power to them but but you know i where i came from and and the kind of guy i am i I really like seeing these kids you know getting together and ragtagging it and learning the hard way and 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 getting after them and they're they're really they're i find that those kinds of people are a lot more successful than the guys with the fancy rigs and all the gear (laughs) right so i think i think we both kind of agree that the thing with the big groups is if that's your deal Control it. It needs to be controlled. It's not my thing because I don't like duck hunting being a party. And the more people I add to the group, the less I feel the nature, the less I feel contemplative. It's it's not a party for me. It's intimate. And so it's not my thing. If it is your thing, you need to, you guys need to be keeping your birds on straps. Not everyone needs to shoot every time. Kind of idea of what you've shot and have someone that's there that can kind of lead it, that can control it in a way where there's not more wounded loss. There's not more, all the laws are being followed properly and you guys are just being smart about, about your business. Yeah. And you know, it's all over YouTube almost other than you guys and a couple people, every video you watch, it's just, you know, we killed our 80 birds and right. it's just crazy. And just, I cringe and you know, you have these big parties and dogs are taking off and guys are shooting over the dogs and it just, Man, it just scares the hell out of me. But right. um, I can't control that. So I guess it's an ethical thing. I try to talk to, to people the best I can without getting too grumpy. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we that stuff does get enforced. I mean, we, they get a warning. And and if they sh- if they do it again, there's going to be some paperwork issued. I got zero tolerance for that. Yeah. Um, it's just the way it is. It's the way it's going to be. If you don't like it, you don't have to come. So. Yep. Well, I think we covered about everything. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or anything we left out before we close this one out? No, I'm good. Well, I just want to thank you for everything that you do out there. And guys like you in this state are just crushing it. And and when when there's a general good public opinion, then I think because people like to bitch, but I think that you know... That's a good thing. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for coming on here. And I think we're going to close that out. I am Elliot, and this is Matt Farmer, and this has been the North American Waterfowler.